Good morning. Everybody doing okay? Awesome. Great. Well, hey, if you have a Bible or some type of device with a Bible app, grab those things and let's go to Mark chapter 12 together. Mark chapter 12. If you're new to Cross Point or maybe this is your first time back in a long time, uh, we've been in a series on the book of Mark this entire year. And so today we're going to close out Mark chapter 12 together. Well, those of you who know me know I'm a huge sports fan. Go dogs. Yeah. The only crowd that hasn't responded that way was the A30. I think there was just a bunch of Auburn fans in the room. So Auburn fans, we love you. But this is kind of redemption. You know, a few weeks ago after Georgia lost really badly, I made a joke that didn't sit very well with you Georgia fans. So I'm trying to make good on that. But uh, hey, we won when it mattered, right? Awesome. So huge sports fan. Uh, One of the things that I enjoy so much about sports is watching the post-game interviews and speeches. Anybody with me in that? Yeah, you can tell a whole lot about an athlete's character by listening to them talk after both victory and defeat, right? Well, listen, in my personal opinion, the most interesting speeches and interviews happen in sports like boxing and MMA because those speeches typically take place in the ring or the octagon where all the action just went down and both the crowd and the opponent are still in the room. Well, listen, in our passage for today, we see a very similar scene playing out. If you've been here recently, you might remember that in both chapters, uh, Mark 11 and Mark 12, Jesus has basically been in a fight with the religious leaders of his day. He enters the city of Jerusalem where he would spend his final week here on earth doing ministry, laying his life down for the sins of the world. But upon entering the city, he goes into the temple and notices all this corruption going down. And so instead of like playing nice, Jesus destroys the place. Starts flipping over tables, runs people out who are buying and selling, and then he rebukes the temple leaders for letting it all happen. Well, these leaders decide, we don't like Jesus, we want to get rid of him, and so they start sending these different groups to challenge him and to question him in hopes of of destroying Jesus, but unfortunately for them, they lost the fight. Uh, If you were here last week, you might remember Mark 12, verse 34, it, it says that Jesus answered all their questions so brilliantly that no one dared ask him any more questions. And so we might expect after winning for Jesus just to pack all of his stuff up and to leave the temple with his head held high in victory, but that's not what he does. It's almost like Jesus grabs the mic and makes a post-fight speech with his opponents and the crowd still in the room. Uh, Look at Mark 12, verse 35. I'll show you this. We'll pick up there. Here's what it says. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. We'll stop there and talk. So Jesus starts his speech with a question. And he actually asks about the group that was just there to question him. If you remember in last Sunday's message, if you were here, there was a lone scribe who showed up and asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. Jesus, what's the one thing I should be doing with my life? What matters more than anything? And Jesus says, let me give you two things. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And this scribe says to Jesus, you're exactly right. Those are the most important things, more important than sacrifice and burnt offerings. And upon hearing that, Jesus says back to this scribe, wow, brother, you're not far from the kingdom. 
I mean, you're not, you're not quite in the kingdom just yet, but you're not far from it, right? He shows up, he asks Jesus, and then, and then he goes on and, and uh, the scribe walks away. And here we have this scene where Jesus raises this question about this group concerning the Messiah. This was a group who, who thought that the Messiah would be nothing more than another king. And I'll explain what I mean, all right? His question, how can the scribe say... That the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. If you were here a few weeks back when I taught on that story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, I taught a little bit around this title. If you weren't here, I'll catch you up real quickly. Uh, this was a very popular messianic title used during this time for the, for the king and savior God promised to one day send into the world for his people. Uh, it was a title born out of what's known as the Davidic Covenant. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that he, through his descendants, would bring a Messiah into the world for Israel. Now listen, I need you to know, when Jesus asked, how can this group of scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He wasn't challenging that covenant. He wasn't contradicting what God promised to David. What he was challenging was this common belief held and taught by the scribes, which again said... That the Messiah would just be another king. He would be another warrior type king like David who would come into the world and with great military might deliver Israel from all her enemies and he would establish his kingdom and they would all live happily ever after. You see, in asking this question, Jesus is making the simple, simple point that what the scribes thought and taught about the Messiah fell very, very short of who the Messiah would actually be. You see, he wouldn't just be another king, and he wouldn't just be David's son, but as Jesus points out, he would also be David's Lord. And he makes this case here by quoting Psalm 110. Uh, This was a psalm written by, guess who? David, yeah, and guess who he wrote it about? The Messiah. I love this. I love how Jesus sets it up. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit. If you're writing in your Bible right now, you need to underline that phrase, in the Holy Spirit, because it is highly significant. Uh, Jesus is pointing out here that Psalm 110 is divinely inspired, that even though David wrote it, God's the one who inspired it, that these aren't just David's words, they are God's words. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared this. Here's Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I need you to feel the tension of what David's talking about here, okay? Uh, and so let me just unpack this a little bit. When you study this, this text in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, there's some interesting things going on with the language. If you look up here, you'll see that this word LORD appears in all caps. That signifies the fact that the Hebrew name for God is being used, the name Yahweh. Anytime you see the word LORD in all caps in the scriptures, that's the name that's being used. The second LORD, that's not in all caps, this is the Hebrew word Adonai. And it simply means king or Messiah. And so David is writing here, Yahweh says to my Adonai, or God the Father says to my king, my Messiah. Here's the tension, okay? David is saying the Messiah who will be my son or my descendant will also be my superior. Now, in a culture like this especially, that was really strange, like nobody thought that way. I know in our culture today, this may not be so strange. It's increasingly more common for kids to act as superior to their parents, right? 
And certain parents let it happen. They just let the kids rule their house and rule their schedule and rule their lives. I don't know about you guys. I didn't grow up that way. Anytime I tried to act superior in my house, my dad was really quick to remind me of my place in the family. Listen, the same was true in this culture. These kids knew their place in the family. They knew we're not superior to mom and dad. We're subordinate to mom and dad. And so for David to write, um, the Messiah who will be my son will also be my Lord. This was completely counterintuitive completely countercultural, And this is what Jesus is pressing into, that tension. He's going, how could David's son be his Lord? Isn't that crazy that, that he would actually say that about one of his descendants? Well, listen, there's only one answer to the question Jesus asked, and it's this. Okay, please don't miss this. The only way for the Messiah to be both David's son and Lord was for the Messiah to be both Lord and the Son of God. 1130, you with me? You awake enough to comprehend what I'm saying here? Listen, this is what the scribes missed. This is why they rejected Jesus. You see, he didn't fit their idea of what the Messiah would be and should be, so they wrote him off altogether. This is why going back to that conversation with the scribe, when the scribe answered Jesus' question and Jesus said, you're not far off from the kingdom? And we're going, well, why is he not far? How's he close but not in? The reason he wasn't in quite yet is because he hadn't yet believed in Jesus as the son of God. You can know what's true all day long, but if you haven't believed, it doesn't matter, right? Here's the application. The application for people like us today living in a time like ours is this. Jesus is reminding us here in the text that a right relationship with God requires a right belief in Jesus. That a right relationship with God requires a right belief in Jesus. Please hear me today. You cannot know God personally. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't experience the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the acceptance of God. You can't know eternal life with God without first believing in Jesus as the son of God. And let me just stop and acknowledge, I I get it. That's controversial in our culture today, isn't it? And some of you, that's why you're thinking to yourself right now, that's why I don't like Christians, because you guys just walk around and, and you say you're right and everybody else is wrong, that there's one way to God, it's through Jesus, and if people don't go through him, they can't get to God. Yeah, that's what we say, but let me tell you why, okay? If you struggle with the exclusivity of that, I just want to lovingly remind you, Jesus is the one who said it. Right? As Christians, we don't just go around saying that kind of stuff to make the world mad at us. We don't claim that to offend. It's offensive, but we don't claim it to offend. We claim it and we teach it and we proclaim it because the very one that we believe is the son of God said it was true about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. John 14, verse six. And so here's the reality. Because Jesus claims that about himself, every single one of us have to make a really simple decision. And it's this. Will we believe Jesus and believe in him, or will we deny him, reject him, and take our chances? Listen, personally, I'll tell you why I believe. Maybe this will be helpful for some of you. I don't know, but I'll just tell you anyway, okay? Um, I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be because he's the only person in history who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled the whole thing off. And and maybe I'm oversimplifying that. I I don't think I am, but maybe I am. I don't know. I um, I think I'm onto something here. I think if a guy claims to be the son of God 
and then predicts his death and resurrection and pulls the whole thing off, we might want to listen to what he says about himself. Amen? So it starts here. A right relationship with God requires a right belief in Jesus. Now, go back to the text with me. I want to show you what Jesus does next. He continues on in his speech. After calling out the scribes for their wrong thinking and wrong teaching about the Messiah, he then goes on to call them out on their religious hypocrisy. So he starts with their teaching, and then he moves to their practice. Look at it with me, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I'm curious, have you ever had somebody talk about you negatively while you were still in the room? Like, that just happened, right? I mean, you can imagine it. Here's Jesus making his post-fight speech. He's talking to the crowd. The scribes are still there, and he's saying to the crowd, hey, uh, watch out for those guys. Like, that word beware in the Greek literally means be on guard, be alert, remain cautious. Don't let them rub off on you. Those are dangerous, dangerous men. And why were they dangerous? Well, because in Jesus' estimation, as a whole, they were nothing more than religious hypocrites. And Jesus goes on in the text to detail their hypocrisy for us. Let me show you. First, he says that they like to walk around in long ropes. That's kind of strange to some of us to think about, right? But in this culture, completely normal. And it was significant. These robes that Jesus references, they were long white linen garments that were worn by priests during this time. They had fringes around the edges, and they were worn to signify religious devotion. And so the idea is that this group, the scribes, they would wear very similar robes and walk around in public places to put their religious devotion on display. Number two, they liked greetings in the marketplace. In this culture, greetings were all about the recognition of social status. But it's crazy to think about, but, but this was true. Um, in this culture, if you were of a lower status, you were actually expected to greet somebody of higher status in public places. If you were a religious leader during this time, it was actually expected of other people to greet you with honorable titles like master, father, teacher, rabbi. And so we can just imagine these scribes. Here they are walking around in these public places and spaces. They've got their long robes on. And the only reason they took a stroll some afternoon was to hear people who are lesser than them greet them with these honorable titles. Uh, Number three, Jesus says that they have the best seats in the synagogues. So when people showed up to worship during this time in history, the scribes, they actually sat in the front of the room by these boxes or these chests that contained the Old Testament scrolls of both the uh, law and the prophets. And they were basically front and center in the room, like their seats where they were positioned. uh, They were in a place where everybody in the congregation was forced to look at them. You know, it'd be like me, like if if we were here singing a few moments ago or or we're praying a few moments ago and we're supposed to be thinking about Jesus and James is on the front step. And I was kind of like, oh, no, 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 look at Jesus. But James is up here like enjoying all y'all looking at me. This is what the scribes would do, front and center, enjoying the admiration. Number four, they sat in places of honor at feasts. So because the scribes were well-known, they enjoyed prestige and celebrity. Oftentimes, they would be invited to these uh, very lavish banquets, very lavish feasts. And they knew in going that the host of the banquet was going to save them the best seat. 
the place of honor. This was the seat right next to the guy throwing the party. And if you're sitting next to the guy throwing the party, everybody knows you're a big deal. They're bringing you the best food and the best drink. And based on what Jesus says, apparently the scribes really, really enjoyed that kind of attention. Number five, they devoured widows' houses. Jesus doesn't go into great detail here to to tell us how they did this, but here's the general idea. Since scribes were not paid for their services, they were completely dependent on the hospitality and generosity of devout Jews. That's how they were cared for. Well, in certain cases, that generosity and hospitality was abused, and they would actually take advantage of impoverished people like widows. So they would perform these religious services. Hey, poor widow, I'd love to pray for you. Hey, poor widow, I would love to help you with your estate. But they wouldn't do those things because they cared about women like that. They did those things because they knew if I do this, I'll get something in return. It was all about selfish gain and benefit. And it kind of reminds me of those TV evangelists, the shady guys, who like tell you that God told them that you as a broach financially struggling person should write them a check for $1,000 and send it to some P.O. box somewhere, and that if you'll do that, then God will turn your situation around. Can I just tell you, that's called false teaching. Those are evil, despicable men. Don't watch them. Don't listen to them. And whatever you do, please don't send them your money, all right? But this is the kind of stuff the scribes did. And then number six, for a show, they would make lengthy prayers. Have you ever been around somebody who, when they pray, you know they're not talking to God? It's like, that dude's not talking to God at all. He's talking to everybody else in the room. I'll just be honest and tell you, we've all got to be careful of that, especially this guy. Um, I've been guilty of this in the past, and so I don't want to point fingers like I'm preaching at me too. It's really easy as a pastor to get up and preach a sermon and then to pray a sermon. But that's called hypocrisy. I've got to be on guard against that. You've got to be on guard against the same things that that the scribes apparently didn't guard themselves against. Uh, They would stand up in crowds of people and pray these very lengthy, eloquent, showy prayers, not because they wanted to talk to God, but because they wanted to impress people. And Jesus says, as a result of their hypocrisy, they will receive the greater condemnation. And so in other words, these guys are going to get some things from God, but they're not the kind of things that they want or the kind of things they're actually going to enjoy. So what's the application for us? What do we do with all this? Well, let me show you. Jesus is reminding us here that doing the right things for the wrong reasons is a bad thing. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons is a bad thing. In fact, doing the right things for the wrong reasons is what we would call religious hypocrisy. You see, I think we do a huge disservice at times to ourselves and to others by only thinking and talking about hypocrisy as as that thing a person does when they say they believe something and then act in a contradictory way. I say one thing with my mouth and another thing by my lifestyle. Like that is hypocrisy, but hypocrisy runs deeper than that. Hypocrisy is also when you do all the right things with the wrong motivation, which means this, and please don't miss it. It means that your behavior can match your belief and you can still be a hypocrite. How scary is that? Listen, I'll try to illustrate it, okay? Let's say you're the person who comes to church every week and you serve and you give and you're in a small group. Um, You're serving a hope for Christmas next Saturday. You bought a bunch of toys and, and you've already given those things. You pray, you read your Bible every day, but you're the person who does all those things to put on some kind of show. I'm going to go serve a hope for Christmas next Saturday and take a bunch of pictures and put it on my Instagram and see how many likes I can get. 
or you do it to impress other people. I want people to think about me in a certain way and in a certain light. I want to earn their praise, receive some pats on the back, so I'm going to do these right things. Or maybe you do certain right things because you want something in return. Maybe if I do these right things and these good things for God, that thing that I want from God, he'll actually give it to me. Listen, it's dangerous, it's scary that we can be these people, but if you fall into that, you do the right things for the wrong reasons, you've fallen into religious hypocrisy. And the question becomes, how do you escape that? How do you escape religious hypocrisy if you're in it? And even more importantly, how do you avoid it altogether on the front end? Well, here's the answer. And if you're taking notes, I would just encourage you to write this down. The only way to avoid religious hypocrisy is by checking your heart constantly. Let me just say it again. The only way to avoid religious hypocrisy is by checking your heart constantly. This is you asking the why question. Why am I doing this? All these right things that I spend my time doing, why am I doing these things? Am I doing them because I love God and I want to honor him and I love people and I want to help them? Or am I doing these things because I love myself and I'm seeking something from God or people? This question matters immensely. Why do I do these right things that I do? Look, if you ask that question and and God wakes you up to the fact that you're doing a lot of right things, but for the completely wrong reasons, here's what you do next. The first thing you do is you get your eyes back on Jesus. You take your eyes off of yourself and you get them back on Jesus where they belong. And then you ask the Holy Spirit of God that lives within you to start changing your heart You see, here's what I love. When God goes to work on your heart and he starts changing your heart, your behavior follows suit naturally. You don't have to work hard to get things right because God has already done the work in you. You actually want to do right things for the right reasons because God has your heart. And so you ask the Holy Spirit of God, just do a work in me so I can do the right things for the right reasons. Now, I want you to go back to the text one last time. After Jesus finishes his post-fight speech, he does something really, really interesting in the next set of verses. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, let me set the scene and we'll unpack those those verses, okay? Uh, If you haven't been here recently, um, I've explained to our church that this section of the book of Mark we're in, it's happening during what was known as Passover week. This was an annual Jewish celebration where literally hundreds of thousands of Jews would travel into the city of Jerusalem and they would celebrate together God freeing their ancestors from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You can read that story on your own time in the book of Exodus if you want to check it out. It's incredible what God did. So all these Jews are coming. Part of celebrating Passover meant paying a visit to the temple to make some type of financial contribution. This was kind of like your yearly offering, right? And so you would go into this area known as the Court of Women. There were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes set up, and you would just throw your money into one of those boxes. And so Mark tells us, as that's happening, as people are coming to give in the temple, Jesus pulls up a seat, and he just decides to watch people give. 
I mean, can you imagine that? Like imagine just a little while ago while we were all giving, if Jesus was here with us in the flesh and he just decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just pull a seat up right here in front of the stage and I'm going to watch all these people across one gift. I'm going to see who gives and who doesn't give and I'm going to watch and see how much they give and how much they don't give. Can you imagine that? I mean, that would be a little intimidating, right? Just in case you don't realize this, Jesus does still see what we give, right? He's alive and different message for a different day, but, but here he is in the temple just watching people give, and he notices first that there are all these rich people who are coming in and giving these large sums of money, and it's almost like Jesus yawns, just unimpressed, doesn't rebuke them for making their offerings, but he's just not impressed by it, and then a poor widow comes in. And she has with her these two small copper coins. These were known as lepta. They were the smallest coins in circulation in Palestine during this time. They were only worth a few cents. Like two of these coins together could possibly buy you a handful of flour. That's about it. And so to the average onlooker, this woman's gift was highly insignificant, very unimpressive. Yet as she throws her two small coins into the box, Jesus comes out of his seat And he calls his disciples, guys, did you see what that woman just did? She gave more than anybody. And I have to imagine at that point, the disciples were very confused, right? Probably several of them are going, okay, bro, I know we're just fishermen and we're not that great at math, but she didn't give more than anybody. Jesus, anybody with a brain or a calculator knows she didn't give more than everybody else gave way more than she just gave. And so Jesus clarifies. He goes, no, here's what I mean. Um, Everybody else that's been giving up until this point, they've been giving out of their abundance. She just gave out of her poverty. And so in other words, the gifts of the rich cost them absolutely nothing. The gift that poor widow just made cost her absolutely everything. In fact, these are Jesus' words. She gave everything she had to live on. When you translate that phrase, all she had to live on, out of the Greek into the English, Jesus literally said to his disciples, that woman just gave her whole life. What's the application for us today? What do we need to take from that? Well, here's the answer. Jesus is reminding us here that means and motive are the measure of true generosity. That means and motive are the measure of of true generosity. And we'll break this down and make it real practical so we get it, all right? If you want to know whether or not you're truly generous today, here's how you figure it out. The first thing you do is you look at your means. Okay, this is your income. These are your earnings. And as you're looking at your means or your income, you then check the proportion please hear me, not the portion, but the proportion of what you give. So in other words, true generosity is measured not by how much you give, but by how much you give in relation to what you have. Are you tracking? Does this make sense? Let me try to illustrate it, all right? Let's say you're the person in the room today who makes a million dollars a year, right? Deep pockets. And you decide, I'm going to give $100,000 a year back to God. That's 10% of my income. That's a lot of money. That's awesome. Well, according to what Jesus is teaching here in the text, and and according to what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, that kid in our church who makes 50 bucks a month cutting grass, that's $600 a year for those of you who are bad at math, and decides, I'm going to give $200 of my money back to God. Well, according to the scriptures, that kid is three times as generous as that millionaire. Why? 
Well, James, you only gave 200 bucks. I gave 100,000. I, I get it. But generosity is about proportion, not portion. Generosity isn't about how much you give. It's about how much you give in relation to what you have. So on a really practical level, here's what that means. It means if you make a whole lot of money, you're going to have to give a whole lot of money away if you truly want to be generous. And I would argue, please don't miss this. I would argue you're going to probably need to give away a whole lot more than 10%. See, I think a lot of churches have done a lot of people a disservice by only talking about that 10% number. You know, that comes out of the Old Testament. God asked his people to give a tithe. What a lot of people don't talk about is the fact that God actually asked his people to give three tithes. Three tithes every year, which totaled up to about 25% of the average Jew's income. So it was more than 10, right? A lot of people don't tell you that. They also don't tell you that in the New Testament, God never commands his people to tithe or give 10%. You know what he commands? Generosity. Sacrificial giving. And so God doesn't lessen the ask for us. He actually ups the ante. He goes, no, no, you be extremely generous with what I've given you. Again, the disservice I think we've done is this. When we've only talked about the 10% number, we've caused some people to believe that 10% is a, is a floor for giving, which means, oh my gosh, if I can't give 10%, I've got to feel guilty and I've got to feel condemned and I probably shouldn't give it all. And that's silly and ridiculous and unbiblical. But at the same time, it's just as silly and ridiculous and unbiblical to treat 10% as a ceiling for giving. Oh, man, I give 10%. Doing my duty. I am doing what the Lord has asked me to do. Really? Because, again, according to Jesus, generosity isn't about portion. It's about proportion. It's not about how much you give. It's about how much you give in relation to what you have. And so, again, I would say, you want to know if you're truly generous? You check your means, and then you check your spirit, and you ask, am I doing with God's stuff what he wants me to do? That, that's first, okay? After checking your means, then you go to your motive. This is more of the spirit stuff, the attitude stuff. This is you coming back to the why question. And look, before, before I go there, let me just say this, because I miss this, and, I, and this matters. For those of you in the room who don't make much, you're probably always going to give a smaller dollar amount than those who do make a whole lot. But here's the beauty. That's okay. That's okay. You know what I love about our story? Our story teaches us that we don't need much to give much. That we can be extremely generous with very, very little. So again, remember, it's about proportion, not portion. Now, after you check your means, you check your motive. This is you again asking the why question. Why do I give? Do I give because I love God and I want to honor God and I love people and I want to see the kingdom of God advance in our world, the gospel to go to the ends of the earth? Is that why I give? Or do I give out of a sense of duty or obligation? Or, or do I give because I want God to give something back to me? Like, why do you give? I would also say to those of you in the room who don't give at all, you should also ask the why question. Why don't I give? Am I holding back because I don't trust God, because I'm fearful, because I don't really know what God says about stewardship and financial generosity, or am I just being straight up disobedient? Like, no, 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 I know what God says. I just like money, and I, I tend to keep it for myself. Again, this why question matters because it reveals your motive, and your motive ultimately reveals where your heart is set. You see what I love so much about the widow in our story? is that her gift proved that her heart was set on God. 
He had all of her. She loved him, trusted him, was completely dependent upon him for provision. God had her whole life. These other people, well, it just didn't seem to be that way. It seemed that they were coming to the temple and making their offering. Why? Because that's just what you do. Every year you come to Jerusalem and you make a gift, right? You, you just give because that's what you're supposed to do. Can I just tell you again, and I'll say this as long as I'm your pastor, right? God is not in, interested in empty-hearted religious behavior. He's not. In terms of, of money and giving, I need you to know God isn't after your wallet. He's after your heart. But he knows the only way to get to your heart is to go through your wallet. I think it was Jesus who said, you can't serve two masters. You got to pick one, money or God. And so for some of us, it might be that our wallet is still on the throne of our heart. God's trying to get that thing off there. But again, what he wants is not the wallet. He wants the heart. And so I just want to ask you a question that I ask a lot around here. Um, Does God have your heart today? Not your behavior. Well, James, I'm doing all these right things. Okay, that's great. Does God have your heart? Let's not talk about what you do. Let's talk about who you are at a heart level. Does God have your heart? Are you in a right relationship with God because of a right belief in Jesus? Are you doing the right things that God has asked you to do for the right reasons? And are you practicing generosity because you love God and you love people and you want to see the spirit of God and the kingdom of God move in this world in life-altering ways? If your answer is yes, James, I'm doing all that stuff. That's awesome. Can I challenge you for a moment? Um, Would you step up and help other people in our church learn how to do that? Like, don't sit in your seat today and just go, I'm getting this right. That's Okay, be a group leader. Disciple some people. Serve with our kids. Serve with our students. Teach some other people how to follow Jesus like you're following Jesus. That's what Jesus would want you to do. But if you're the person going, no, I'm not there. Um, God doesn't have my heart like you're talking about, James. I just want to invite you in the next few moments. Why don't you just offer your heart to the Lord? Don't come before God with one of those prayers like, I'm going to do better. I'm going to work harder. God, I'm going to get this right. Don't do that. Instead, why don't you just come before God and go, here's my heart. God, I recognize today that Jesus gave his whole life for me so that you could have my whole heart. And so, God, here's my heart. Do a work in me so that my behavior would follow suit. If you need to give God your heart today, I want to invite you to do it now. Let's just bow our heads all across the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And I would just invite you right now, start praying about your heart. If you need to hand it over to the Lord, just do that right now. Just begin to ask him to do a work in you, Holy Spirit of God. Work on my heart today. Just ask him for whatever you need. As many of us are praying, I have to imagine that there are some of us in the room today who have never in faith offered our hearts to God for the first time. We've never come to that place in our lives where We've put our right belief in Jesus, confessed him to be the son of God. We've never asked Jesus to be our savior, our king, our Lord. Look, if that's you, you probably know who you are. You showed up today with no joy, no peace, no purpose. You're struggling. You've tried to fix your life. Nothing's worked. When you think about eternity, it scares you to death because you don't know what it means for you. Look, and I just want to tell you, God loves you so much that he gave his son Jesus on your behalf so that you could experience and receive as a free gift all those things you desperately need. 
And so if you need to give your heart to Jesus today for the first time, why don't you just say something like this in prayer to him? Say, Jesus, here's my heart. Here's my heart. I believe that you are who you claim to be. You are the son of God. You are the savior of the world. And Jesus, I put my faith in you. I I believe in your death on the cross for me. Your death that that was died to pay for my sins. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. Your resurrection that freed me from sin, death, and hell forever. And so Jesus, take hold of my heart. Take hold of my life. Put your spirit in me. And help me to live the life you've called me to live. Jesus, I want to know you both now and in eternity. So I say yes to a relationship with you. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I want to ask you to do me a favor if you would. If you just prayed that with me or something like it and you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, would you acknowledge that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? Just wherever you are. Just throw it up real high, James. It's me putting my faith in Jesus. We see your hands going up. Thank you so much. If you'll keep them up for just a moment, our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Anybody else, James? That's me putting my faith in Jesus today. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen, for the rest of us, I'm going to pray. And we're just going to respond for a moment before we leave. God, uh, would you help us to truly surrender our hearts to you on a daily basis? God, We know this is not something we can do on our own power, on our own strength. God, I'm praying that we would be a people who would constantly check our motivation, check our attitudes, ask why we're doing what we're doing, and that we would be a people who live in response to all that Jesus has done for us. God, help us with that. God, we we need you. We need you to continue changing our hearts long after we leave this place. And God, we're trusting that you will. Thank you for Jesus and for all that he's given on our behalf. God, our lives are yours. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.